So it is not the season of Christmas, at least how we celebrate it in our culture. But like last week, we are continuing through the narrative, the, the major, larger narrative, the redemptive narrative of Scripture uh, through key passages that kind of give us anchors as to what God has been doing throughout human history in creation and through his people. Um, so tonight we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Tonight we're not going to go through this verse by verse. There is a lot going on here. At least it's easy to get lost in the weeds, but um, what I'm going to try to take us through tonight is more of a honing in on key characters, events, and theological themes of the passage that I thought were really stood out, and I hope they inspire us to even dig deeper into this uh, passage and understand why it's in this book, this gospel of Matthew, um, written primarily to a Jewish and a Jewish-minded audience. It's very, very interesting. Um, how many of you guys know that this is the only place in the New Testament where this is recorded? Um, I thought I knew that, but as I studied it, rem I was reminded that that's the case, and that was kind of something in the back of my mind, wondering, you know, this is obviously important, but it's interesting. It's not in the other synoptic gospels or the gospel of John. And so we might be able to uh, speculate or possibly beyond speculate about that as we go on this evening. But uh, let, let's, let's move into the text. Um, thank you so much for praying us in, Jonathan, and leading us in worship. Um, so my primary question tonight, and we will go into this towards the end in trying to answer it, something I would like us to think about as I'm teaching through this text is, why were the Magi only mentioned in Matthew, the gospel that was primarily written for a Jewish audience? Just something for us to think about. Have you ever watched a movie or read a story where you feel like there's something that's just out of place, almost like it just got inserted in there as an editor's edition or just something that might not have been necessary? Well, this is one of those situations where, you know, to the average reader that just moves through this text very quickly, you wonder, why is this here? What's the significance of it? It's a really fun story, and there's been some incredible songs in the Western tradition that have been written uh, based on this section of historical narrative. But, but there are some, you know, understandably so, that, you know, even question the historicity of this event. Most of them are mainstream scholars, of course. But one commentator noted that the fact of a comparable visit or comparable visit by Eastern Magi to Nero, uh, you know, many decades later in AD 66, vouches for the probability of this story rather than otherwise. So what I found is that's the nearest event of something similar to this happening. Um, Matthew chapter 2, in fact, there is no direct or explicit reference to these magi in the rest of Scripture. However, <laughs> I'm sure Dr. Matos knows this as well, that in the Old Testament, as it was translated in the Greek, there are a few uses of this word in the singular, I believe it's magoi, and in the plural, it's magus. I, I don't know if I said that right, but that's what it looks like. And it's interesting that one of the primary references is Daniel 2, verse 2. Who are some of these people that might have been referenced in the book of Daniel? Um, if, if you want to take a peek at that, 
that would have been called these wise men that were comparable to um, these, these dudes, these gentlemen that are described in Matthew chapter 2. Um, who are these mysterious guys? So they, they are, it's translated magus, these wise men. They were, in a sense, counsel to the king, the leader, the prince, those that needed wisdom and um, insight into a realm that most human beings, if not all, did not have access to. And this is the way the ancient Near East sought out wisdom uh, that they needed to make big, deci- big decisions. Um, you know, of course, th- this is, you know, most explicitly outside the G- you know, Jewish context. But it is very interesting that we hear about these, this type of, um, in a sense, class of men. I, I think they were primarily men that I, that I know of, this class of men uh, in the scriptures. So these are people that existed and they did things that were very extraordinary. They were aware of things that seemed to be extraordinary. They seemed to have powers and abilities that were extraordinary. And I think there are movies that we've watched that have you know, play, played these things out a little bit through certain characters. So the Magi, in the ancient Near Eastern world, Magi were learned men. They were trusted advisors and king, or two kings. They were trusted advisors to kings. They were proficient in the knowledge of mathematical calculations, astronomy, medicine, astrology, alchemy, dream interpretation, and history. And some of them were proficient in multiple of these categories. Others, as we'll see tonight, you know, we don't know specifically, but they had more of a proficiency in one specific area. Um, So there was a diversity within this class of unique uh, characters throughout history. Um, Also, they were practitioners of magic and paranormal arts. One commentator described the Magi in this way. Their title was loosely applied to men adept in various forms of secret lore and magic. Man, those sound like really interesting people. The people that came to mind, the the characters that I think we might be able to connect with are um, people like in Lord of the Rings, Gandalf the Grey and Saruman the White. And the interesting thing about these guys is they're not necessarily evil. Some of them use, throughout history, have used their powers for good, and others are very sinister. And so it doesn't mean they're specifically using their abilities for evil, but it also doesn't mean that they're using their abilities for the Lord, because many of them didn't know him explicitly. But um, there is this interesting reality that's been played out in some ancient and modern literature about a class of people, a class of men that had these abilities. And, and uh, I couldn't say that I know enough to know how these types of people were developed and where they came from. It's almost like they were just born with a very special ability to see and understand things that most people can't. Um, on top of, I'm sure they had very special training, specialized training in their area, in their skill set. So these Magi who visited Jesus were clearly astrologers. And what we're going to talk about is what we know. There's a lot we don't know, but in terms of the text, I'm just going to mention things that we definitely know. And I'm going to argue based on the question I posed initially, the answer to that, at least the answer that I'm giving, is why I believe we don't have more details than we do. But this introduction was just more of a getting to know historically what these characters are like and the fact that there is a pretty broad range in this, um, in, in, in this class of, of mankind. So one commentator, actually, these magi who visited Jesus were clearly astrologers, but we know nothing more about them 
based on the biblical text. I believe the Holy Spirit did not inspire Matthew to record more details as to the origin and nature of these magi because there was a far greater truth that was to come from this story. So let's, uh, the, uh, a next key um, image or part of this story is the star. It's created a lot of speculation and wonder. And we'll just briefly, for interest's sake, go through a little bit of the speculation. Um, but then I'll give my brief opinion as to what I think uh, the deal with this unique astronomical phenomena, if, 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 so to speak, was. So this is my, my first secondary question. The primary question was the one I posed at the beginning regarding the Gospel of Matthew and why specifically this and only this text were these guys mentioned in. But my first secondary question is, um, is this a natural or a supernatural event or both? Since um, the natural perspective, since the 17th century, there have been careful astronomical studies of peculiar celestial phenomena in the decade before the birth of Christ. So apparently there's been ability to trace some of these astronomical events that have happened around the birth of Christ regarding uh, planetary position and um, comets and different things. And so the speculation that I've found about this being a natural phenomenon is relating to that research. And the explanations are that it might have been a supernova, a comet, or a convergence of planets. The, the second uh, possibility is that it's purely supernatural, and the third possibility is it's a combination of both. Well, regardless of where you land, it seems to be something that had a, at least some form of a supernatural element because this any, any of these astronomical phenomena, it seems like they either continue to move and then they're gone or they're in a certain spot and they move very slowly, almost like they're stationary. But this specific star, this specific bright light in the sky seemed to be something that led the Magi to this location. They were asking questions. They were inquiring about where this great king was born. And then after they got the information they needed, the star started moving again and it laid rest right over the place where the Christ child was. So it's very interesting, but it seems to be, in my opinion, either B or C. It's purely supernatural or a combination of both. But again, just a fun conversation. None of these things, are, I, I believe, are the focus of the text, uh, nor is it worth losing even more than a, a sandwich over in a conversation. Question number two, again, a secondary question. How might the star have been identified with the coming of the king of Israel? This was something that's always really interested me. So there is some extra biblical information on this. Uh, first point is the anticipation of a star in first century Israel. Josephus spoke of a star that stood over Jerusalem and, a, and of a comet that continued for a year at the time of the fall of the city. So this was around 70 AD, but this was not something that was foreign to this time period. Second, second point of extra biblical information is the heavenly sign marked great men. Uh, one very scholarly commentator uh, on the book of Matthew wrote, the thesis 
that at least the births and deaths of great men were marked by heavenly signs was widely accepted. This was a very common understanding throughout the ancient Near East, not just in this time, but well before this time. And the interesting thing is this is very foreign. These are foreign concepts to us as modern and postmodern Westerners, but it's really helpful to understand that uh, there wouldn't have just been Jewish people looking for some of these signs. Whether they knew exactly what this specific star was referencing, whether they, these magi knew the extent of who the Messiah was, there was something unique that was happening. And these astronomers, these astrologers, they were observant. They were waiting. They were watching. There was something about their studies. that, And, and I believe, as I'll argue later, the Lord was doing something in their lives to give them a sense that this star was unique. This was one that they were anticipating that was going to mark the sign of great men. And the interesting thing about uh, these types of, uh, I guess, examples in history is, you know, the question that always comes to my mind is, how do these ideas get developed? I mean, I'm sure there's answers to it, but I think all of us, if we're inquiring enough, we wonder, how in the world do these types of things in the natural order come to be markers of births of great men. Where does this come from? It's just very fascinating. And um, the reality is, is in, in God's word, he uses these things that are common in the mindset of man and in tradition and in culture to do his work. And that's one of the primary things that I will argue that th this text is showing is God often works far outside of his people and, and in special revelation to do the work he's accomplishing in the work of redemption. So the interesting thing is, why wasn't this written in the gospel of the Gentiles? Why in the book of Why in the book of Matthew? It's it's so intriguing. Not why in a negative way, but it's uh, it's we know there's a reason, and it's very uh, it's a very worthy endeavor as believers to um, ask these questions and try to find answers. Because I believe most times there is some person or group of people that have come up with the answer in the Lord through their studies, and it just takes the digging to uncover them and you know share them with the body of Christ. So it's a worthy endeavor. But um, I, I think that's very helpful laying the foundation for um, these men and this star and why all this makes more sense to this, uh, the audience in this time period. So what I believe at this point is that God was using the interests of the Magi through general revelation to draw them to special revelation. What, what do we see in the text? We see that they came as they followed the star but they didn't exactly know where once they came to Jerusalem. And the king, King Herod, the infamous King Herod, he found out about this. Well, who did, he, who did King Herod call to get further information as to what this might, what might mean? He assembled in verse 4 all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. It's interesting. He, he seemed to know where to go. Uh, what does... What what does Paul say in Romans chapter 3 about the benefit of being a Jew? He says, much in every way, because to you have been committed the oracles or the sayings of God. Of course, we know that um, King Herod had some sort of biological genetic connection to the Jewish people, but he also had a whole side of him um, biologically and historically that was not connected to the Jews. So he was kind of trying to play both sides in pleasing the Romans and pleasing the Jewish people. A very controversial and very scary character. 
Um, in general, the line of Herod, the Herods, which was a, um, it was a, it was a lineage of kings. It's not his actual name. I don't, I don't remember this exact Herod's name, but he was better known by the infamous name of Herod the Great. I called, I, I renamed him in this study Herod the Infamous. So you just keep that in the back of your mind. He's definitely Herod the Infamous far more than he's Herod the Great. The Great seems to throw off. Uh, it gives him too much credit, in my opinion. Um, so uh, it, it's, very, it's very amazing that um, this is what God used. And these chief priests and scribes, although they might not have been looking for a Messiah like the Christ child, they were the ones that had access to this special revelation. They had the answers. And it seems to be that these magi found out about this further understanding of what this Messiah was to be and um, who he was to be and how the Jewish scriptures described him far before um, he became the incarnate son of God. And so um, God is using general revelation and special revelation in this text uh, to help us understand that he is the God of both and he uses both in his process of redemption throughout human history. They're both very beautiful, and I believe they complement one another. Um, R.T. France, a commentator I've grown to love as I've read more of his stuff, said that God used their astrological, these are the, speaking of the Magi, and cultural background to communicate with them in a way they would understand and respect. I mean, talk about a God who comes to the level of those where, the, where they are at and uses general revelation to draw those that are seeking to his name to understand the details, the special nature of his word that describes truly what they need to know to come to know him. So contrasting these two kings, we just did it. Hey, there's Herod the infamous, but it's interesting. Um, in, in this verse, in verse six, um, and we'll get into it uh, in, in a few moments. It's a quotation. It's kind of a hybrid quotation of some Old Testament texts, allusions, and um, it's a little more of a paraphrase. This is not a direct quote, but there's a, there's a heart behind why the author used this specific uh, passage or combination of passages and Old Testament allusions ideas here to describe the coming king. So this is what, um, th this is what was said when, when the scribes and chief priests answered, at least what was recorded, answered the king Herod's question. In Bethlehem of Judea, verse 5, they told him, because this was what was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Do you see the contrast? I love how shepherd my people Israel was not in Micah 5.2. That was added. There was an allusion back to the kingly lineage of David, how he was the model of the shepherd king whom Jesus would come through as a human. He would come through that line, which we'll go back there in a second, but it's interesting how Ab David and Abraham are the two men that are mentioned at the very first verse of Matthew when it goes to the lineage. And I believe there's very specific reasons why that's the case. They had two very specific representations in their name, in their, um, in their lineage, specifically what they did by the grace of God in the legacies that they left. So um, Herod the Great, 
or Herod the infamous king of the Jews, um, this guy was out for himself. He acted like he was out for others, but ultimately when when it was all said and done, when he was upset, the local world trembled because they knew either someone in his family was going to die or something worse. He was, he was wondering, why have they come to pay homage to me? Why have they not come to pay homage to me? Why are they coming for this other king? Is One thing you know about him is he, extremely, he was extremely jealous and did not want anybody to threat usurping his throne. So he acted as though he had a sweet, gentle, harmless question to the Magi, but ultimately his question had much deeper ill will and evil motives. He was startled at the thought that he had a potential rival to his throne living in his realm. However, the great shepherd, who will shepherd my people Israel, the one who would come in the lineage of David, the great shepherd king, this is Christ. And I believe, um, however God inspired the author, Matthew, of this book to modify this the heart of this text to get the point across, I believe it is very clear that the author was creating a clear contrast between who the Jews were submitting to as their local king versus this king that was born, who was filling in as a usurper of the true king of the Jews, which was one of the primary names of King Herod the infamous. Uh, But Jesus Christ the great shepherd, he truly was the king of the Jews, is the king of the Jews. What was the title? One of the titles that was placed, actually the main title in three different languages, I believe, that was placed on top of his cross that he was crucified on. King of the Jews. Just, I mean, even though Herod the Great wasn't still alive at that time, it just rubbed it in even further. Jesus was not seeking that title he owned that title, and his life exuded that title. It was given to him. It was acknowledged clearly that's who he was. He did not have to defend himself constantly, verbally, and prove it. He knew that God would shine his work through him as he was faithful to him, and that title was clearly fitting to his name and his legacy and his reputation. So, uh, secondary question three, why did King Herod go first to the religious leaders of Israel, the scribes and chief priests? And this is what we touched on a little bit earlier. As Paul said in Romans 3, verses 1 and 2, so what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. So there were good shepherds, I believe this is also kind of an allusion to Ezekiel 34. This was a perpetuation of that bad shepherd motif that the Israelite leaders continued to pass on. Um, In the infamous side of their legacy, of course we know that there were some who were good godly leaders throughout the history of the nation. But it's a huge contrast to the shepherd that would be one like David who would shepherd the people of Israel and ultimately would be the fulfillment, the perfect shepherd, where there would not be a need for another shepherd of Israel, especially in realization for those who trusted in him and realized him in personal experience as their true and final and permanent and eternal shepherd. So again, we went through um, the quote, the Old Testament quote, kind of paraphrase, um, this is, Matthew's addition in this text resembles that of Jewish targums. 
It was more a paraphrase and an interpretation than a literal rendering of the Micah prophecy. If you go back and read it, it definitely sounds a little different. I used to really stumble over that. But I don't think these authors are claiming to quote these texts verbatim. I think what they're trying to do is they're making these beautiful connections. They're using this hermeneutical concept of intertextuality. They're linking different texts and themes throughout the Old Testament to the life of Jesus and saying, look, this is what I believe the Holy Spirit wants these readers, the recipients of this message to hone in on. And this is why I'm making these adjustments, these modifications. This is, this is the word of God. This is not maligning the word of God. It's bringing to light what the author from the word of God, the themes and principles that they believe is most important um, for the historical narrative they are writing to make Jesus great and make him known to their audience. So, Moving forward, and if something if you want to dig into further, yeah, there, there's uh, the shepherding allusion is Ezekiel 34, the good and the bad shepherds. Uh, there's allusion, an allusion to 2 Samuel 5.2. R.T. France again says, um, 2 Samuel 5.2 makes clear the status of Jesus as the son of David, born in the city of David, to rule like David over the people of God. Who would think there's so much packed into one verse? The shepherd's motif of the second Samuel passage protects against any interpretations of Micah that would support an absolute ruler and offer backing for a tyrant like King Herod. I thought this was an incredible insight from a commentator. Um, understanding not just that he would be a king, but the nature of his character, the nature of his kingship. Because no, the author... Matthew did not want the reader to have any mistake. He was wholly distinct from King Herod or Herod the infamous. He was not anything like him in his character and nature. And this shepherd motif ultimately described so well the way Jesus carried himself throughout his ministry on earth. And how fitting is it at the very beginning of his gospel, gospel of Matthew, to bring that up? to kind of prepare the way for these Jewish-minded readers to read through it and go, wow, this is the shepherd that the Old Testament was talking about. This is the one that other kings and other rulers, even if they did well, didn't even come close to touching on the masterful character and consistency that Jesus represented. So it's setting the stage for the rest of the scripture and looking at Jesus through a lens that would cause them to fall more in love with Jesus and more in love with the God of the Old and the New Testament. So, so we now come back to the primary question that I posed at the beginning of the message. And what is it? Why were the Magi only mentioned in Matthew, the gospel that was primarily written for a Jewish audience? This is my conclusion. It's found in this statement. Salvation was of the Jews but not exclusively for the Jews. Let me say that again. Salvation was of the Jews, but not exclusively for the Jews. Was there an audience that needed to hear this more than, the, than this audience that Matthew is writing to? Their common mindset was salvation was of the Jews and for the Jews. This was never taught throughout the Old Testament, but it was part 
of a tradition, a mindset that became arrogant and callous to the heart of God that, in a sense, created the Jewish people out of a Gentile, Abraham. They were a people that were designed and crafted by the creator of the universe. Romans 1.16 says to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile, and then to the Greek. This is not a matter of exclusivity, but of divinely set order. Just because you are part of a latter part of the order or a certain part of the order doesn't mean you're less significant or more significant. This was just God's divinely set order in his redemptive plan and process. And as we know, as Paul so beautifully draws out and kind of plays on this text or, or just this theme that I'm discussing that, that, that's coming about in this passage is the reality that um, there is a major shift in salvation history from the Jewish people to the Gentiles, and we are still in that process 2,000 years later. It's not a wholesale rejection of the Jews, but there is this temporary hardening, this circumstance that the Jews are in, and God leverages that to bring and draw Gentiles to salvation. So it's not about exclusivity in God's redemptive plan, but it's about a divinely set order and purpose that quite frankly, uh, we are on a need to know basis. And these, this is something we're just not privy to, but it's beautiful that God has explained enough through his apostles and prophets in the scripture to know that he's got it under control. The things that did not make sense, for example, Paul's like, no, let, let me make sense of this. This isn't a bad thing. God is using this and just let human history roll out because God's plan is far superior to something that you might think he would do if you were in his place or something that you think is a total train wreck. No, God is completely, um, has his plan, his redemptive plan and how he is metering out salvation, so to speak, to Jew and Gentile alike. And let's trust him for the order he set out and know that um, he is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. As it says in First I believe it's First or Second Timothy, chapter two, Matthew one one, and this is what I kind of alluded to this, but I want to go back to this real quick. Um, this is the account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I believe that one of the primary reasons this is the opening statement is the un- for the Jews to understand that. This Messiah was not just for those who were part of that Davidic covenant, part of those who would come from the family of David, those ultimately who are of Jewish blood. But the son of Abraham, which I would argue, and I believe the scriptures clearly teach, that he was a pagan, he was a Gentile, he was called out of a Gentile pagan nation worshiping other gods, and God created a nation through him. So I believe the name Abraham in this specific passage would draw the reader, if they were really paying attention to what the author was saying, to the fact that God is the God not only of the Jew, but also of the Gentile. He is not a respecter of persons when it comes to salvation. Important things to remember. God was the God of humankind before he was the God of the Jews. Number two, God, and this gets a little more specific, God was the God of Abraham, a Gentile, before he was the God of the Jews. Let us and let those who are listening that might have a Jewish foundation, might we all look back to the same common scriptures that we 
um, see as being divinely inspired by Yahweh and realize that that is the purpose for them, that that's the plan of God in his work in history and his work through uh, this man, Abraham. So in closing, a theological application, we've kind of gone over it, but I think is really fitting in closing to sum up why I believe, and again, this is all the answer to the primary question um, in my perspective, why this focus on the Magi in this section um, when it's not in other gospel accounts, when it is the gospel of the Jews? What, what, is the, what is the deeper reasoning possibly behind that? My first thought is we should never limit how God can and might masterfully use general revelation to bring Gentiles to himself. What Israel had missed, though having special revelation, these Gentiles had gained through a combination of general revelation and their superstitious beliefs. They acted upon what they knew through general revelation and God brought them to special revelation. Second and final, those who might appear to be far from God's kingdom might in fact be very near. And those who appear near to his kingdom might in their hearts be very far off. How challenging would this have been to a Jewish-minded person reading this passage However, how helpful would it have been to set the tone of their heart as they read the rest of this gospel, realizing this Messiah, this King of Kings, is not just for the Jews. And, and, and look at the audience um, of some of the narratives that, that we see in the book of Matthew. He does not just interact with Jewish people. Um, I could be wrong, but I believe th- th- there's a section that where, where there's, a, there's a lady that interacts with Jesus and she is a Gentile and he ends up responding to her and giving her what she wants. But the interesting thing is the way Jesus draws out the discussion, it almost seems like he's very harsh towards her. Um, she says, in, he says in a sense that the dogs um, are fit to eat the crumbs off the table. And she says, in a sense, yes, but even they get the crumbs and I'm okay with that. I mean, that's a very loose paraphrase, but I believe he's playing into the mindset that Jews had of Gentiles, but what was the end of that? He responded to her and he extended salvation to her. And it's a reworking in God's plan of the mind of the Jew, but for us to understand that it was, again, as a reminder that God was never exclusively focused on one specific people group for his major redemptive plan. However, the way God designed his plan of redemption, there was one specific people group that had a lot of focus. And that was the people group that held the lineage that the Messiah came through. It seems to make sense that they're going to hold a lot of focus. And honestly, it seems to be that the church in the age we live in post-Acts chapter 2, in a sense, is picking up that baton that Israel had to represent Yahweh to the nations, to represent the gospel, to represent God to everyone that comes in contact with us. And many times it won't be a conversation, but hopefully by the way we're living our life, it causes people to want to have a conversation with us and ask us about what we believe. So I encourage you, if, if you don't know the Lord 
truly, he is a God who has desired from eternity past to redeem all of mankind, Jew and Gentile, but it's exclusively given to those who believe, those who respond positively to his offer of salvation. We must turn from our sin, from our lifestyle, our rejection of God and rebellion against him and desire to live for ourselves through our own means, in self-dependence, um, defining our own moral standards and submit to God as the one who truly can give us abundant life and give us the meaning and purpose that we were created to have. So I encourage you, if you have never had that experience, that understanding of who God is and are, are interested in him through the teaching today, um, reach out to us, please, through the number on the screen or if you're in person, one of the pastors or leaders at the church who will be in the back ready to pray for you. Please approach one of us. We'd love to talk to you. And again, this was an incredible study in the life of the Magi. There's so much more written on it, but um, let this be a reminder that there's so much richness in a text that we can often breeze through because it's such, it's, part of such a strong tradition that's only talked about in a certain season of our Christian heritage, and then we move on and rarely talk about it again. Let us mind the depths of God's word no matter what season of life we're in, no matter what time of year it is, and find that, you know what? In the middle of summer, God could have something amazing to say. In the middle of spring, God could have something amazing to say in the book of Matthew, in the gospel of Matthew, through the account of the Magi. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these mysterious characters and how they represent in the New Testament your heart for the lost and the fallen in the Gentile community. We praise you, Lord, for helping us understand and reminding us that those who look so near to God might be the farthest away from him and those who look so far away that have no hope might be the ones that you are drawing to yourself. And may that humble us to be open to seeing your work in anybody's life that we know. Knowing that, that when it comes to salvation, <laughs> truly you are no respecter of persons. The only persons that you turn away are those who reject you and say, I want the life that I'm living. I want no one, including God himself, to rule over me and be my master and shepherd. However, those of us who have trusted in you have found that that is the most beautiful way to live life. Yes, it's hard it's challenging, but as the pastor spoke about this morning, uh, Dr. Corley, that we have a beautiful hope that when we feel like we have nothing tangible to grab onto, it is that something that is sure that we have to grab onto in faith, knowing that you will, in your perfect timing, accomplish it. We trust these truths and these realities in your care and keeping, and we pray that your spirit will work them deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.